This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is Campaign Catch-Up on the last day before the 2022 federal election. It's Friday, the 20th of May. Today, political editor Catherine Murphy joins me to talk about the possible paths to victory in this election. But first, here's what happened today. The Australian Electoral Commission will allow voters who test positive to COVID to vote by phone at this election. The Commission admitted yesterday that more than 100,000 people could be disenfranchised because they tested positive for COVID after the deadline for applying for a postal ballot closed. The Morrison government's National Security Committee reportedly rejected a proposal from Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. Last year, she recommended that Australia double its financial support to the Pacific, partly to prevent Chinese influence in the region. The Australian newspaper broke the story, citing a leak about the deliberations of the highly secretive National Security Committee. Prime Minister Scott Morrison was in the Perth seat of Swan, where he refused to confirm whether this report was true. I don't discuss things, and my ministers don't discuss things that are addressed and worked through at the National Security Committee. But when pressed, Morrison suggested the information could have come from department officials. What I can tell you as a government, well, um, the National Security Committee is not just attended by ministers. It's also attended by officials. The PM wouldn't say whether he would investigate the matter, and he rejected the idea that more money would have prevented China from exerting its influence in the Pacific. Shadow Foreign Affairs spokeswoman Penny Wong called the report extraordinary. Apart from the fact that the National Security Committee has leaked the day before the election, what this shows again is Mr Morrison dropping the ball. You know, that they simply did not uh, keep ensure that they looked at how Australia could make sure we were the partner of choice. Labor leader Anthony Albanese started the day in Adelaide in the marginal seat of Boothby. What do you have that Scott Morrison doesn't? I have integrity and the capacity to take responsibility. He received glowing endorsements from recently elected South Australian Labor Premier Peter Malinowskis and former Labor Prime Minister Julia Gillard. As you know, I don't do this much anymore. In fact, I never do it anymore. Uh, But I've made a particular exception today. Gillard spoke directly to undecided women voters. If you want to make a better choice, please, tomorrow, go to your ballot places, go to your polling stations and vote Labor and vote for Albo to be Prime Minister. I am very confident it will be a government for women. Albanese said that voters had a choice between Labor, which would end the climate wars and make childcare cheaper, and the Coalition, which had left Australia with a trillion dollars of debt. Three more years of the same, three more years of dysfunction and disunity, or a Labor government that's united with senior ministers. Only a vote for the Liberals and Nationals tomorrow will enable you or your kids to have the opportunity to access their superannuation to buy their own home. Prime Minister Scott Morrison continued to try to push the coalition's super for housing policy on the final day of the campaign. In 10 seconds, what is your final pitch to voters and why should they vote for Scott Morrison? Because a strong economy means a stronger future. We can't risk labour with higher debt, higher deficits, which are only going to push up your cost of living and push up interest rates. This election has turned into this really narrow contest between a terrible government that's got to go and an opposition that keeps agreeing with them on too many of the issues that matter. 
and Greens leader Adam Bant said that he was hopeful the minor party would pick up some more seats in both the lower house and the Senate. You can safely vote one Greens and know that you'll turf out this terrible government and push the next government to do better. Coming up, Catherine Murphy's here to talk about the path to victory for Australia's next government. Hi, Murph. Hello, Jane. How are you? One more day. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then into something else, yes. Yes, <laughs> whatever yes, that will be. Whatever that will be. I mean, we know from the polls that this contest is still very tight, but just mm-hmm. indulge me in one more choose-your-own-election adventure. Yeah, let's do it. What are the numbers? Where are the major parties currently sitting? At the moment, Labor holds an notional 69 seats in the 151-seat House of Representatives. So the Labor Party needs a net gain of four from the coalition in order to hold more seats than them in the House and a net gain of seven to form a majority government. Yep. Uh, so at the moment, as we stand here today, the coalition holds 75 seats. So the Morrison government also needs to win seats in order to have a majority after Saturday night. Also, just for folks playing at home with their bingo cards, there are currently seven independent and minor party MPs on the crossbench. Most of them we expect to retain their seats. So that's people like Helen Haynes and Zali Stegall and Rebecca Sharkey and Adam Bant and Andrew Wilkie. The only uh, person really in the frame potentially to lose their own seat would be Craig Kelly, who, of course, these days now is the parliamentary leader of the United Australia Party. But park that thought on the United Australia Party because we're going to come back there. Which seven seats is Labor hoping to win on Saturday to form a majority government? Let's just do the conservative thinking at this point. So I think Labor strategists are hopeful that on Saturday night they gain two seats in Western Australia, they gain Boothby in South Australia, they gain Chisholm in Victoria and they gain Reid in Sydney. So that takes them to 74 Yep. Then also on the grid for Labor in terms of seats they're targeting and they hope to gain, Brisbane, which Labor strategists are increasingly confident about, Robertson on the central coast, Bennelong. They've been uh, investing a lot of resources into the Bennelong campaign, even though that is traditional Liberal Party territory, and also Higgins in Victoria because Katie Allen, the Liberal incumbent there, there's no teal independent in that seat. So I think Labor is hopeful that some sort of disillusioned centre-right progressive votes will come their way in that contest in Higgins. We did the minimalist and the maximalist. If we're in maximalist territory, then Labor is in majority government if that happens on Saturday night. I hope everybody heard the if. Obviously, the coalition can't afford to lose any seats and we know they're under threat from a number of moderates, as you said, from teal candidates. Where are they thinking their best chances are at this point? Well, look, I think the government would be hopeful that it would pick up Craig Kelly's seat in Sydney. I think that's huge. Yeah. Certainly, the coalition is trying very hard in Hunter Uh, And that's a three-way contest uh, between the Nats, Labor and One Nation in that seat. Mm -hmm. I think the coalition is hopeful about Lingiari, but it's very, very difficult to poll in the Territory. So it's hard to know which way that seat would fall. Also hopeful about Karangamite 
in uh, Victoria and Gilmore. But all of these these sort of have asterisks against them. I don't. I have not spoken to anyone with any great confidence of picking up you know, a swag of seats at the moment. I think the Liberal Party is hoping for a minority government situation that they could win, basically, in terms of a negotiation with the crossbench. The other sort of side of the ledger for the Liberal Party is the losses and how many teal seats fall. So even if they were to gain some out of the seats that I mentioned, if they lose Goldstein, if they lose Wentworth, if they lose North Sydney, I don't think Josh Frydenberg will lose Kuyong, but if they lost Kuyong, any gains they make are cancelled out. Now, I know this sort of might lead listeners to conclude, well, Labor's got this in the bag, right? Well, uh, <laughs> um, maybe not. And and also it'll depend on, it's interesting that you say that the, the Liberals are thinking perhaps a minority government at best. It, it'll be interesting to see what that crossbench looks like in terms of how they negotiate a minority government. Well, that's the thing. See, they've got Bob Catter on the crossbench. They've also got Rebecca Sharkey signalling that she would be more likely to back the coalition than not. Uh, then we've got got a bunch of other independents who basically are sitting in Liberal seats, a number of them. So again, I don't think any conclusions can be drawn about what decision those independents would ultimately make in the event that we're in a minority government scenario. Coming back now to Clive Palmer's United Australia Party, There are some reports that suggest there might be more voters quietly supporting the UAP who aren't showing up in the polls. If that's true, how could this affect the result tomorrow? This is the thing that sort of makes this contest very difficult to predict because we suspect that there will be a pretty strong non-major party vote in this election in various parts of the country. Now, MPs on both sides whom I trust who have been on pre-poll over the last week in particular are reporting that in some outer suburban contests, the foot traffic coming through pre-poll, it's anything as high as 20% of the people passing through pre-poll are taking no major party literature at all and taking Palmer leaflets. Like, obviously, you know, that's not scientific. People aren't sitting there with a counter. But it is possible that there is a very significant non-major party vote in various parts of the country. Mm. Look, in, in some contests, that may lead to an independent or a micro party taking a seat. But in most contests, it will then be a matter of how the preferences distribute. And in terms of the Palmer vote, my gut feeling is it's more likely to benefit Morrison than Labor. And so then that could buttress Liberal fortunes in some key seats around the country and in the event of a very close result could influence, uh, you know, the final call of the board. So we just need to bear that in mind. This is one of the factors that make this election quite difficult for anyone, really, to forecast, and that in- that includes the major parties. So, yeah, it's genuinely, I- I've said all campaign, I'm not entirely certain what I'm looking at, and that remains my view. What, for you personally, is the most interesting seat to watch tomorrow? Well, let's do two seats, right? Okay. It's, it's not necessarily the most interesting seat in the country per se, but... 
from my analytical starting point in this campaign, just tracking back to why it's difficult for Labor to win, mm. uh, I've been saying all campaign, because of the enormous electoral buffers in Queensland as a consequence of the 2019 campaign, that it's entirely possible that Labor gains no seats at all in Queensland. But in the event uh, Labor gains the seat of Brisbane and there is an outside chance that either Labor or the Greens could pick up the seat of Ryan, which is traditional Liberal Party territory in Queensland, that will be quite interesting because the progressive forces have been able to you know, shift the pendulum slightly from where things were in 2019. And, and if that happens, that's sort of indicative of, of a shift that will matter in the final result. So the question I guess I started the campaign with was, can Labor gain any seats in Queensland? And if the answer is yes, well, that sort of indicates that Labor is closer to being able to form a government either in minority or in majority. So given it's so close, Murph, how likely do you think it is that we'll be able to see a result on election night? It could be too close to call. And we will certainly, I think, in any case, be waiting until the WA results uh, get in. Mm. We spoke earlier in the week, Jane, about the undecideds coming off the fence, right? This is the time when people make their decisions. It is possible that once the undecideds make their choice, that that breaks strongly one way or the other, in which case we won't be up all night. We've got one poll remaining, and that's the news poll, which generally drops about 9pm this evening. What all of the polls, Ipsos, Resolve, our own Guardian Australia poll have pointed to is a tightening in the contest. So if that's our touchstone, it could be a long night on Saturday. But if the undecideds break decisively one way or the other, though, could all be done by eight o'clock and everybody can relax into their drinking games for the remainder of the evening. For those voters who are informed and still equivocating and they listen to this show, what would you say is the biggest policy difference between the two major parties? Just a little plug for our own work, Jane. If people go to The Guardian, there is actually an excellent policy breakdown of the differences between the major parties. Because of the length of this campaign, it's been a very long campaign, uh, I think people are quite ground down by it and are starting to sort of have their senses a bit dulled in terms of, you know, who's saying what, who's into what, who opposes what, right? I strongly recommend people go and hunt that down because if you are interested in policy and you are trying to make a decision on that, that's a, a very useful piece that we've produced. In terms of what I think the big differences are on things that actually matter to people, in terms of the state of democracy and what happens over the next 20 or 30 years, if Scott Morrison is re-elected, I don't think we will see a Federal Integrity Commission. In majority, the only way he will bring his legislation forward is if everybody in the parliament agrees with it. The Labor Party has committed to legislating an Integrity Commission by the end of this year, The fact of the matter is it's pretty stark and pretty obvious. Similarly, on climate change, I know a lot of progressive people are disappointed that Labor's climate policy is not, you know, sufficiently ambitious if we view it through the prism of what the climate science tells us needs to happen. I completely understand that. I have that view myself. But there is a very distinct difference (laughs) between what the coalition is promising by way of climate action and what the Labor Party is promising. And let me make that distinction very plain. The difference between the major parties is that Labor is proposing to legislate a target for medium-term emissions reduction 
that will ensure that emissions reduction starts now. The coalition has, you know, says it supports a target of net zero by 2050, so supports a mid-century uh, emissions reduction target. But there is no policy at this point in time. Basically, the coalition's strategy is we'll, we'll pump a lot of money into technology. We hope one of these technological things is a magic bullet. So for me, as a political editor at a major publication in Australia, two things matter. The quality of our democracy matters and serious climate action matters. All right, thanks so much for your time, Murph. I'll let you go, but I'll see you tomorrow. See ya. That's your campaign catch up for today. We've got one more show for you. I'll be here to catch you up on everything that happened on election day late on Saturday night. And before you head to the polls tomorrow, there are a couple of things you should check out. The article that Murph recommended is called Who Should I Vote For? Guide to Seven Key Policies in the 2022 Australian Federal Election, Where Labor and Coalition Differ. It's a very good explainer of the key distinctions between the major parties. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. And it's also worth listening to Murph's podcast, Australian Politics. It's out now. The Canberra team answer your questions about the election one more time on this episode, and they take a deeper dive on things like what the Senate could look like after tomorrow. Depending on who is in power, there may well be a hostile Senate. So Tasmania, South Australia and Western Australia will, and Victoria will be critical. You can find Australian Politics wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, Karishma Luthria and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Thanks for listening and I'll see you late on Saturday night. Until then, go out and vote. <laughs>